Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Adam Davis. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the role of the engineer in the context of fintech. Engineers are essential to any software development company, uh, large or small, but they might not always be the most front-facing figures in a product build. Uh, engineers are traditionally seen as builders, uh, and what we want to get into today is how the face of an engineer has changed since the birth of fintech, what are some of the challenges that they face, and how do they go about explaining technical processes to their stakeholders. Uh, but before we start, we just want to tell you about some of the things we're working on here at 11FS uh, and have a quick word from our sponsors. Blockchain Insider, our podcast dedicated to all things crypto, is back by popular demand. Join me, Simon Taylor, alongside Visa's head of crypto, Kai Sheffield, as we're joined every other week by special guests to discuss their take on the hottest crypto news. We'll also be diving into DeFi, stablecoins, NFTs, and a whole lot more. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest-performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. Let's get started. As always, I'm not alone, but joined by Nick Funnel, VP of Engineering at 11FS. Nick, I think this is the first time we've done a podcast together. This like feels like a meeting now. Like, how are you doing? It is. I feel you. I feel I know you very well. But this feels very new. Uh, yeah, I'm very well, and I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, good to have you on. Uh, and to dig into this, we're joined by some fantastic guests. They're making a special welcome return to 11FS uh, FinTech Insider. We have Simon Vanskalina, co-founder of Fronted. Uh, how are you doing, Simon? I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, and joining Simon making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Chris Margonis, who's Senior Developer at Plum. Uh, Chris, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you very much. and so excited to, to be here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And last but by no means least, uh, making her FinTech Insider debut, we have Amber Goldberg, who's Software Developer at Curve. Amber, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Really excited to be here today. Yeah, good to have you guys uh, on board. And uh, let's get started with the conversation. So um, the engineer, I guess, traditionally seen, uh, you know, from a legacy perspective as those in ICD department sort of uh, in banks, uh, builders, never to see the light of day. Um, I guess like the role of the engineer across maybe the last 10 years, especially, you know, given where uh, or just how important software is now and how technology has evolved, uh, has changed, you know, so much. I guess throwing it out to everybody, uh, Nick, I might start with you. Um, but just how have you seen that role develop, I guess, across the last 10 years and especially, I guess, after the birth of, you know, the movement that we call fintech? Well, I suppose, as with everything, it depends. I mean, I'm, I've spent my whole career in banking, largely in big banks, but I think, over the last 10 years, I think certainly like in a bank, often you're a long way from the from the product, if you like, from the work that's being done. So what I think is interesting with as you know, these sort of new fintech is bringing up smaller companies, the engineers are much more part of that build. You have to be more, and I hate to overuse the word, but you have to be more agile. You have to be more reactive and have a shorter lead time. And thus, you need the engineers sitting very close to product design delivery. So I think for me, that's the, that's the main thing. But I'd be interested in what everybody else thinks. 
I mean, I, I think the thing for me is that um, software used to be a way for banks to solve banks' problems. And fintech is really about using software to solve customers' problems. So there's a big change in focus now. It's not just about taking sort of a business requirement and a financial opportunity. It's about actually using technology that goes right out to the customer to actually solve customer problems. So, you know, I think that's the difference between finance and fintech. Um, yeah, I agree with that, actually. And I think as a developer, you're also the, you're not only the um, builder of the, the product, you're also the user and the customer because we, everyone's using fintech nowadays. And especially if you're working at a fintech, you're using your product and you get to not only look at it from a developer's point of view, but also as a customer. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, like you said, all three points are, are great and I, I couldn't agree more. Especially Nick's point about uh, the engineers being very much more involved in the process of building software, building product, uh, building solution for the end customer. So that has changed. And do you, do you think, I guess, uh, to, to work in, there'll be a lot of people, I guess, listening to this who might be engineers, might want to get involved in fintech. I suppose, um, from your perspectives, is it sort of an imperative that an engineer now who wants to get close to building, let's say, banks, digital propositions in banking has a background in financial engineering because it's, uh, you know, we've kind of seen, you know, and Nick will testify to this. We get sort of people from all sort of walks of background who have developed all kind of products. Um, but I'm just interesting to get your views on it. You know, if we're coming at it, I guess, from a consultancy angle, if you're coming at it from a startup angle where you guys work, is it imperative to have that background or actually can you sort of get involved in this? We used to say something at Monzo, Adam. We used to say, is it harder to teach a banker to code or a coder about banking? And I think the answer is it's pretty obvious. Like you can take an engineer and, and teach them about how finance works and, you know, and all of the intricacies of building a bank a lot faster than you can teach bankers how to build a distributed system. So um, I, don't, I don't think it's a prerequisite to, to have a financial, to have a background in finance. Like Investopedia is a thing. Wikipedia is a thing. You can learn pretty much everything you need to do to build a bank. I mean, we certainly did it once um, just by, you know, hitting up public, uh, publicly available data sources. Um, it's much more important to, to have a good understanding of how to build product and how to make product scale and how to build something that's, you know, actually compelling for a user. Like that's a much more difficult skill to, to hone rather than just the, you know, the, the simple stuff of moving money around. I mean, most banks, most financial services organizations were built sort of, you know, over the last 30 years where computers, you know, they were giant mainframes, right? The amount of processing that they would actually do is minuscule compared to the, the difficulty of like building a beautiful iPhone app, for example, right? So, I think um, I, I definitely wouldn't wouldn't say to people who haven't got any finance experience, like stay away from fintech. Fintech is great. And if you've built any kind of product before, you can get into it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think, and in fact, in some some ways, you know, companies are specifically not looking for people who've worked in traditional banks. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I agree with some. You can teach, like if, if you can code and you can build things. So really it's, it's I don't want to say it's about attitude and mindset, but it, there is definitely a cultural element of, there, of being able to, to move fast and to react and to actually understand and to put yourself in the customer's position, actually, and understand what it, understand the thing you're building. So not be just absorbed in the code for code's sake, but actually building something for somebody. 
Yeah. One question I just wanted to ask you, uh, Nick, was about, I guess, uh, the role of the engineers on projects. Do you think that there's there's various ways, I suppose, that we work with engineers and engineers obviously work on, on our product builds? Sometimes, you know, they code. Sometimes they get more involved in, in product decisions. And I saw recently on Facebook, uh, there was a post by one of the product developers there who said that actually in, in his sort of years experience that he's just had at Facebook, he hasn't even touched as a product manager the backlog because all of that is owned, groomed, planned by the development team. And I just wondered from your perspective, how, how much uh, recently, just given where technology and fintech in, uh, especially has gone, do you see the merge of sort of uh, engineering and product and, and how much emphasis would you place on your engineers to actually have a product background or want to be in, interested in product? Um, well, I think, I mean, we've, everybody's familiar with the term T-shaped skills. I think it's about having depth in, in your particular area, as in an engineer will be able to, to build things using code, but then certainly having appreciation for what other people are trying to do, because that's how you break down silos. You know, what you certainly don't want is a product silo where they're coming up with a backlog and throwing it over to engineering. And we can get into this a bit, and, you know, the, the whole idea of separate offshore engineering teams and that sort of friction. I mean, that can, that can work in some situations where you've got a, you know, a very old, stable piece of you know like the mainframes that Simon mentioned earlier but but by and large fintech you know you're you're having to react so I think it is useful to have engineers who understand a bit of product and product who understand a bit of engineers so actually the lines start to blur and you just you in the end you have a team of people who are building something yeah Amber I wanted to get your views on that as well because it's um you know you guys you know you're sitting I guess um in a very uh you know, in a, in a fintech that many you know many engineers would potentially want to work for. Um, when you like, when you look at uh, hiring engineers into into Curve, do you look at those who um, potentially have got more interest in the product side? Do they need to have that interest in finance, not necessarily in finance, but certainly in fintech, in you know wanting to serve customers' needs, or actually is it more around their skill sets, their languages they know, coding languages, etc.? Um, so it's definitely not specific to coding languages. I think we look for engineers that are interested in the product. I think it's very difficult to work day to day on something that isn't of interest to you. Um, and also people that want to be invested in a product. So when we hiring, um, we'll look at, you know, we give them not to go into like in depth of hiring, but we give them a task and, it's largely based on our product. Um, and you can tell from how much they're, how much the candidate is interested in the product by their design. And I think also they want to make the best products. I think I've said that. Um, but like they want to design something that works well. I think that's the main thing. I don't think it's specific to the technology or the um, language. I think yeah. it's about creating something that works well and that's easy to use. And um, just a quick one, because there's, like, I think, j just given where um, engineering is at the moment, engineering recruitment especially, I mean, you know, you can't find an engineer at the moment uh, for love nor money. Maybe you guys are doing a lot. <laughs> um, it's a lot easier for you guys. This, right? I mean, an amazing shortage, it seems, of engineers and speaking to recruitment agencies and speaking to um sort of, uh, you know, uh, consortiums and those people in the industry looking at this, they say that this shortage is actually going to continue for a long, long time. I guess um, without sort of going into sort of the, you know, the education of it and all that sort of stuff, which I do think is important, what what, what I suppose um, 
needs to shift this so that you know the amount of fintechs, the amount of new technology companies have, I suppose, the you know a plethora of choices when it comes to actually hiring engineers, and, and and there's not so much of a skill shortage. I know Chris, if you've ever experienced that where you guys are. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's very true, and I think what has to change for this is for for more people to to enter, you know, um, the market, let's say. And they don't have to be uh, graduates from universities. The way things are is if you if you want to learn how to code, if you want to learn how to build software, you can do that. There are many sources available online for a person to to go about it. And for example, at Plum, we don't give as much weight to university degrees or degrees in general. Uh, like Amber said, we also look a- about how uh, how a candidate approaches product building, and if that person is interested and driven and wants to improve, learn, and as a consequence, improve the product. Um, so yeah, there is a shortage, and given the fact that everything in uh, fintech today requires some sort of software working for something i don't see it changing that much in the future i have a i have a theory about um why it's hard to hire engineers and and i don't know if it's fully thought out and i don't know if it's correct i just want to preface that by before i say this i think the problem within i think that we're always going to have an engineering shortage and the reason i think that is because the average engineer when they've just come out of you know code academy or they've just got a degree is they might be able to get some work done, but they're doing it without the experience of having, you know, supported the software that they've written for multiple years. So junior engineers, I think, have a tendency to get some stuff done, but they also create technical debt that other people need to clean up. And that's like, I'm holding my hand up. I'm a terrible engineer. And I did that for years and years. And it took me years to get to a point where I could write code that I knew would, would you know, not add technical debt over time. Um, and for that reason, I think that there's this weird sort of inversion where um, a lot of companies don't want to hire like younger junior engineers because they know that over time they are they start off as a, as a net negative and they're not willing to invest the time in taking people who are you know recent graduates from code academies or from from university and actually building their skill up so that they're a, a net positive contributor over a long period of time. I think there's a fundamental problem in the way we're training engineers that's that's not easy to be solved because we don't work in a sort of a gilded environment where you can go through an apprenticeship and be bonded to the, to your to your master like the way we used to do it. You are now free to leave as soon as you have a you know two years experience and you are a positive engineer. So I think we are going to have a period of time or a long period of time actually where it's it's going to be difficult to to hire engineers. Um, but there are some things that are changing really quickly now, like um, GitHub's just released Copilot, which is this sort of artificial intelligence machine learning tool that helps you code. And it's um, it's not magic. It can't you know do the job of an engineer, but it can mean that when you have skills in one programming language, like if you've learned the basics of an algorithm and you've learned the basics of you know how to you know how to describe what you're trying to do then it can quite often fill in the blanks for you it can quite often make pretty good code and you can just check that the logic and not have to worry about the syntax which is going to mean that people's coding skills their ability once they've learned in one language they'll be able to work in more languages for example i can code in go and i can code in python but if you ask me to write something react or javascript i'm absolutely terrible but i can 
uh, I can use one of these um, artificial intelligence tools like these machine learning tools like Copilot um, or Tab9, and I can just start writing the comment and say, like, you know, this is a JavaScript function that will do these 10 things, and Copilot will probably do a pretty good job of writing the code for me so I don't spend any time trying to fix the syntax. Um, so I am hopeful that, like, that will mean that people can um, sort of get started more quickly um, and get mm-hmm. up to a net positive contribution more quickly. Um, so maybe maybe there is light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Do you think? I mean, d- d- just speaking slightly about the education of it, uh, I know. Uh, I know, for instance, in my, I mean, my my, my eldest is is five years old. Um, so he's in, you know, he's sort of going into his year one in school next year, and he's just got leaflets through about doing sort of coding classes yeah. after school, which is like, I mean, you know, wouldn't have ever happened, obviously, I, in my day. I was, your five. Days, I, guess. I was five when I learned to code on an Apple IIe. Oh, wait, yeah. oh wow! Look at that. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, it does happen. So I'm, I'm, I was absolutely. I mean, I was amazed. I was like, you know, this is great. You know, I've signed him up. Um, but I, uh, you know, it, it, is is that? Um, I suppose to your point, Simon. You know, you've got to bridge a gap in expertise in the industry, which will probably last. You know, maybe five, maybe even ten years. But eventually, we'll get there. And is the key, therefore, to is this that an important subject that we need to be teaching it in schools? Yeah, I mean, I just heard that the government's going to start teaching Latin in in uh, in state schools or something. That, yeah, I read the that. Only, yeah, yeah, like the only language that and I'm I'm stealing this from someone on Twitter. I didn't come up with it. The only language they should be teaching in state schools, apart from English, is Python, right? <laughs> Hey, yeah. I mean, I, I I agree. I mean, I'm I'm all for it. Um, I've I've signed my kids up. All my kids are going to be going through it, whether they like it or not. Um, Nick, Nick, I wanted to get your views. Yeah, I mean, just as a slight, because I I I agree. Um, but as a, as a counterpoint to that, I think one of the things we want from engineers that a junior almost by definition wouldn't necessarily have is the experience uh, of knowing how long something takes. Because I find that yeah the. I've got in trouble for saying this last. Like sometimes I say, technology is not the hard bit, and any technologist looks at me and goes, uh, "Hang on a second, <laughs> you're obviously not writing code anymore." But what I mean is, a lot of the problems we solve, like you can do them. I I saw somewhere that uh, which is something I really like, which is essentially any successful complex system is made up of lots of simple components rather than starting off with complexity and it's something that we value in engineers is actually the ability to write something very very simple so actually you know and to write something simple takes experience to kind of know that you know when you write this thing any change you make you're going to have to support it there's a long tail of stuff that you'll have to do so for me that senior engineer thing is all about like the simplest most reliable solution to give you an example like I don't know if you saw this we had a, a work conversation on slack the other day somebody in the company was asking about their wi-fi and we're having all sorts of solutions well you know, ubiquity or mesh etc my suggestion was a very long network cable which is boring as hell but it works and that for me is that kind of senior engineer kind of like just solve the problem in front of you without making it too interesting and i don't know if you can teach that or you know yeah inherent maybe yeah Amber, have you got thoughts? Yeah, so I just want to point out two things. I think firstly, learning coding in school is great. I started coding in high school and I loved it so much that I studied it and now I'm in a software engineer. Um, so I think it's great to start young and get people involved from that aspect. And I think there is a bit of a gap between your first job and studying. Um, I did computer science and it was largely theoretical and you know there was a bit of coding but it's a lot of um academic work and not necessarily what we do on a day-to-day basis at 
any job at Curve as well. Um, you know, you think you're going to use all these things that you learn in university or whichever like program you're using and you don't. It's often about the process of, yeah, it's a process of getting requirements, building something from scratch. Um, what like the coding part, it's the, the most important part, but it's actually a very small part of it. And often it'll take a week to design something and like two days to build it in code, which I don't think many people realize. Um, and I think to get that point across and that experience across to more junior developers is a bit difficult. My friend Kieran McHugh, when uh, he left Monzo and started his own company, Daybridge, and he um, he likes telling this story that like he did his computing science degree and he did his master's and uh, he learned about all these fancy algorithms. And it wasn't until like five years later that he fa- he managed to use recursion like for the first time, which is like one of the most basic things they teach you. They're like, mm-hmm. you're going to use recursion everywhere. It's like, nope, there's like one piece of code in the entire Monzo that uses recursion. And uh, it's crazy. It's interesting. The um, I, I just wanted to actually, because we'll, we'll move on to the next section anyway, but it sort of dovetails nicely. There is this... Um, perception and amber you just mentioned it you know you've got eight six eight whatever it is days of design and then you've got like two days of code um depending obviously what the feature is what the product is etc um do you feel as engineers especially you know engineering companies now or fintechs are i don't know simon i mean you you might be able to throw a statistic out there in terms of the ratio and proportion between engineers and non-engineers uh fronted chris you might know the same thing at plum and but super interested in if if you guys have got those stats on the top of your head Uh, i know from 11fs perspective we're weighted heavily or heavier in favor of engineers than we are uh, on the business side and we're a consultancy so that sort of speaks for itself in terms of you know sort of i suppose the changing nature of, of of the sort of projects that we're working on um do you feel though even within that that senior management um really understand i guess what you guys do so you know those who aren't necessarily trained as engineers um do they struggle to understand exactly what engineers should do or sort of the remit of engineers and, and, and how far they should go uh within let say the design and development process companies that have technical people at the top do much better than companies that don't and i think it's one of the reasons why vcs really look to for technical co-founders when they start companies now like it's it's kind of a, a you know, you don't you don't get funded if you don't have a technical co-founder. Um, at Monzo, Tom was one of our original engineers. Um, you know, our, C- our CEO and our CTO were both cutting code with us. You know, for the first couple of years. Um, at Fronted, we're um, two of the three co-founders, including myself, for um, come from a technical background, are engineers. Um, and Anthony, my my co-founder, is um, he's sort of our chief product officer, but he's also an amazing and en- you know front end engineer as well. So. Um, two thirds of our com- two thirds of our of our um, founding team are, are technical, and m- about half the company is technical in total, or enge- you know, our engineers in total. Yeah, I definitely think it helps to have people at the top who do have that background. But I have found that it's some of the problems that we deal with and the the day to day challenges can be easily explained to somebody without a technical background. And I think it's just about taking that time to explain it to them, like why things take so long or why certain things will go quicker. Um, and then it just takes the like the mystery out of the engineer and the coding, which I think a lot of people think it's this big mystery and how do you do it? Oh my gosh. But it's it just needs simple or simplified explanations, I guess. I totally, just on that, I totally agree, actually. And I think it's, I don't want to use the word democratizes, but I think it's important for engineers to come out of there. You know, we, we engineers complain about sort of being ignored by the business, et cetera, et cetera. But actually it's incumbent on us to 
clarify what we're talking about because it can be simplified as, as you as you say it can be for the business to understand it and then to you know be, you know we have to move towards the business as much as they may have to move towards us so i, I totally agree with that uh chris just to get your thoughts on this yeah exactly there is uh, definitely a communication barrier between technical people and non-technical people and from my experience an essential part of a successful team is the ability to communicate and convey information to non-technical people and actually this is this is something that one can train for uh, some people are talented and can do it either way but there are ways to improve the ways that you communicate as an engineer so other people can understand your your point and this uh, in my in my experience again has uh, contributed greatly to to a team achieving goals in general yeah i mean I, the interesting thing for me is uh and there was a question that i put in here which is you know do you see in 10 years potentially c suites at legacy banks having you know or, or legacy institutions don't necessarily have to be banks but having technical people sitting on them um and when i say technical people i do mean you know those who have got an engineering or or, or background sure um, yeah definitely like I mean, I think, you know, Monzo and, and Starling both have technical people. People don't really know this about Anne Bowden. Anne was an engineer, like, at, at Starling. She started her career as a, as, a, as a computer engineer, probably working in punch cards. But, um, you know, Starling and Monzo were both founded by technical people. So I think, like, the what is today's fintechs will be, you know, tomorrow's big banks. So it's, yeah. And if And I guess, like, the... I suppose the afterthought of that is, you know, as much as Chris, you know, you're talking about engineers potentially changing the communication to be able to express clearly and, te- you know, what, what technical work that you've done. Is there an onus as well on, let's say, you know, your, your clients in, in, in sort of our, our, our world of clients, Nick, I guess, but clients, but then also, you know, senior management who aren't technical to learn some of the, you know, the really key uh, I suppose aspects of of coding to be able to you know hold that conversation themselves because I'm, I'm I just wonder about sort of the pressure that you guys get from senior management because they might not necessarily understand exactly what you do or how long you know a certain feature would take to be coded etc. So I just wonder about that owner shift. You know, actually, is it it's on you guys obviously to be able to communicate clearly, but it's also on the sweet suite to be able to understand what you guys are doing. And I just wondered if you guys had ever faced that kind of tension before. I'm not sure it's so much about being technical, right? Like, I think you can have really fantastic um, C-suite managers in a finance organization who've never written a line of code. But I think what you want to find is the ones that are looking forward to where the technology is progressing. Like, I've worked with, I've worked in companies where the senior management, I'm being really careful, I don't, I don't name drop anybody here, but where the senior management team were led astray by consultants who... T- told them, and I'm talking about, I'll, I'll name drop Oracle because, you know, they deserve everything they get. Oracle basically <laughs> convinced them that the future was, you know, Oracle Cloud and Oracle Fusion Platform and Oracle WebLogic and Oracle crap everywhere, right? And meanwhile, the actual, the actual truth of the world was that everybody was going to move toward Linux and Kubernetes, right? If, you, if you're a, a senior manager in, a, in an organization, um, you, can, you can make really, really bad decisions um, both as a technical senior manager or a not technical senior manager. The more important thing is to be connected to the future in a way where you're like paying attention to the changes in technology and paying attention to 
to you know what um, what new movements like you know Docker and and Kubernetes and the cloud like what's coming down the pipeline that's going to fundamentally change the economics of your business. You don't need to be technical to do that. You just need to remain really engaged with the technology. I'd say you don't need to be technical. You do need someone. Well, unless you are technical, you need someone working for you who you trust. That, that's what I've found. If you're a non-technical who's obsessed person. by technology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is something actually I got to. Um, I wrote a piece for our unfiltered blog, which is always good fun because you can write something thoroughly opinionated and provocative, all about how people, you know, management don't should listen to engineers more. And essentially, and this is more in bigger organisations, I think, where people, you know, man, you know, leaders are responsible for a lot of people, and they will make technical decisions that then get rained down on the people below who are landed with the like. For instance, sometimes it's like like management said, use Oracle. The engineers probably. Went, what on earth are we using this for? You know, why, why is this? This is not the right solution at all. But the solution had come from up there. Somebody there who hadn't asked these people here, you know. So I think there's, and I think this is actually easier in a smaller fintech where, again, you're, you've broken down that silo a little bit. You've got fewer people. I think in big enterprises, and I think this is one of the reasons enterprises struggle with change, because you have these armies of people and so much internal politics where, you know, manager here needs manager here to use the system they've created, even if it isn't quite the right system. You know, there's a lot of that, I think. But, you know, I could rant for hours on this. So. No, it's all good. Um, and I, a quick question I wanted to ask uh, in this section before we went on, um, slightly left field, um, but there's quite a few no-code companies, uh, low-code, no-code, that are starting to gain a lot of traction, a lot of VC funding, et cetera, in the market, especially over the last sort of six months, 12 months. Um, I just wanted to get your guys' opinion on it as sort of, you know, sort of engineers to, to, to the core. Um, because... A lot of the mantra is, look, you know, we're building, you know, a selection and suite of products that you guys can develop on, on top of. Um, you don't need to be a developer. You can be a designer. And actually, we're taking out the need of a service suite of engineers. And I just wonder where, where, where your thoughts were in terms of, you know, that succeeding or the type of product quality, I guess, that you'll get from that. I don't know, Chris, if you've got any thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it sounds more like a niche. I mean, it will eventually find its its place. That uh, drawing from the past, if we were to listen to, the, to some people uh, like five to, to ten years ago, uh, React Native will be everywhere right now, and mobile engineers, native mobile engineers, would not be necessary, not be needed. But it's, um, this, this, this didn't happen. So it, that doesn't mean that it wasn't useful. It was, and it, it still is. But uh, maybe we still haven't found the exact place for it. Cool. Uh, Amber, your, your, your views on that? I mean, when you said that, like, maybe they were only developers, that was a bit scary because I've always thought that this is quite a stable industry <laughs> to be in as a developer. <laughs> Um, well, I'm, I'm only going from the missions of some of the, I mean, some of it is, you know, is, is you know, it's just, you know, provocative in, yeah. in the way that they're coming across their messages because you actually obviously need the engineers to build the low-co solutions to then actually, you know, provide that. To, so, you know, in, in some way it's sort of a, you know, there's a self-repeating cycle anyway. But yeah, I, your, your thoughts on it anyway. Yeah, I think I agree with Chris. I think there might be a, a place or particular product for it. Um, but also, like you said, you'll need the engineers to build the, the no-code solutions. Um, and you might also need engineers to, um, hook them up into existing systems. Um, so I think it, it depends on the, the purpose and the need for that design and that solution. Cool. Cool, cool. Um, we're just going to take a quick pause here. Uh, we'll be back very, very shortly. And here's a word from our sponsor. 
Customers expect more from their digital experience, and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch, or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalized experiences that increase retention, satisfaction, and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. Cool. Welcome back. Uh, let's move on to the uh, the next part of the conversation, which is around communicating, I guess, complex information to the C-suite. Um, I suppose uh, from, from your perspective, Nick, again, I'll probably start with you. Um, in your opinion, I guess, what are ways to ensure that senior management and en- engineers have, I guess, a kind of a clear line of communication between each other? And, you know, does that involve you know, the rest of the team, the product managers, the designers, et cetera, or, you know, how does that work in your mind? And you, and you want a, a quick one sentence answer on that, do you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very, very, very concise, if possible. Yeah, sure, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> one pithy soundbite coming up. Um, um, yeah, well, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, in a, in a huge organization, obviously, it's a massive challenge because you have a, a complete sort of like the information changes all the way up as people are reporting different things for different people with their slants on it and their agenda. I think it's, I think it's obviously easier in a smaller company in a fintech with a, a, a relatively sort of flat structure, shall we say. Um, I think metrics are always useful. Um, just, and this is off the top of my head now, you know, if you can, if you can report concrete things, I mean, you have to be careful with metrics, obviously, because if you, what's, there's a law, is it Goodhart's law? If, if a metrics start, if you, if you use a metric as a target, it ceases to become a useful measure or something like that. Um, so, you know, if you pick a, pick a thing and start to measure it and make everybody follow that, then people will start to game it to get that. But I think if you can have a broad range of metrics that you don't, um, with some commentary, but that you don't mandate those metrics and you don't kind of base performance on it, then I think that's probably the most objective use. But then, as I say, you need the commentary and then that, that allows discussion based on them. But as I say, it's, it's, I, I don't really have a good answer to this, to be honest. No, do, do, do you think, um, uh, I guess, is there an element of it which is linked to organizational setup? So, you know, in, in some organizations, you might have um, multidiscipline teams, including engineers and product uh, folk and design, all sitting with each other or even remotely, but are working on specific missions. And then in other organizations, especially some of the big organizations, you might have your, you know, your business teams, um, your product team sitting in like even one jurisdiction, potentially. I'm thinking back to an example in my head of where I've worked before. And then, you know, your engineering team in a completely different jurisdiction and they're almost separate entities. Do, do you feel that, you know, in order to get success, just where tech has gone to now, you have to almost be, you know, one team multidiscipline who's sitting together. Simon, I'll come to you. We had this really good thing at Monzo that our, like our, my current company front is too small to implement yet, but we used to do retros after any big project, whether it was a success or a failure or whether it took twice as long or half as long. And they weren't just for the engineering team. They were for everybody involved in the project. And it would be like, you know, no, no blame, but like, let's go through everything that happened and what took longer than we thought and what was harder than what, than we thought and what were the bits that turned out to be easy and what were the bits that turned out to be, you know, assumptions that we didn't test that were false. Um, and these retros were really good at like sharing the learnings of, of, and making everyone in the team better because you don't make the same mistake twice if you've heard about it. Right. So instead of just the engineers being like, oh, you know, we, it took way longer to build this, you know, this one feature. Everybody would explain why it took way longer to build that one feature. And everybody then had the experience and the knowledge of like knowing next time you try and build a feature like that to just watch out because it's going to be trickier than you think. 
Um, so yeah, retros and after action reports and um, and the other the other process I really liked was before we did anything at Monzo that was big, we wrote an RFC, like a request for comments. And it was usually a really beautifully written, carefully crafted document that tried to anticipate all of the questions that you were going to ask. Um, and it was usually written by a product manager or, or, the, or the senior engineer on, on the team that was going to build it. And we would swarm over those for maybe a week of getting comments and feedback. And then maybe the design would change two or three times before anybody started working on it. And it's really, it's like, it was over and over again, I was surprised at how an idea would change so dramatically from the first time somebody requested a comment. They'd write down how they thought it was going to work and answer all the questions they thought were going to be important. And then, you know, other engineers would come along and be like, why don't you just do it this way? Or like, why don't you do it this way? Be so much more scalable or better. And there really is wisdom in crowds. And so I think setting it, setting yourself up so that you benefit from the wisdom in crowds before you build something and you also educate the crowd after you've built something so that the crowd becomes smarter and, and more useful to you next time. That's probably the, the key lesson that I learned. Yeah, that's a nice, that's, yeah, it's a nice trick, that one. That's a nice tip. Um, Chris, from your experience, um, you're, you're based at the moment in Athens. I'm assuming you've got sort of a remote team working. How, how I guess, are you guys set up from an engineering perspective? And, um, you know, when we look at things like multidiscipline teams versus, um, you know, business focus processes i guess how do you guys manage that that, that balance yeah uh, in regards with being remotely and distributed you mean yeah but being remote but then also uh you know not not even pandemic link but i guess you know being remote versus yeah you know being sort yeah. of one i guess multidiscipline team that's you know focused on a feature so we have been set, set up as a multidisciplinary teams and uh, the company started working in a remote friendly manner way before the pandemic. So when the pandemic hit, the transition wasn't painful at all. And that was something that uh, helped a lot uh, because we stayed uh, focused on what we had to build. And uh, by also using processes like Simon mentioned, like retros, where not only the engineers, but other people who participate, uh, we try to learn from our mistakes. And another thing that I would like to add on top of that is uh, having in place processes which ensure that you are not going to have silos in your company. So one team working on one feature, another working on a similar one, and in the end colliding because uh, they were working on the same product and something went wrong. So having periodically syncing sync up meetings or like uh, documents like Simon described to communicate information or changing changes incoming uh, has been very helpful. Yeah, no, I was going to say I agree with, I mean, what everyone said and also like having multidiscipline and like people from different aspects of the business in a team really enhances the product. Um, at Curve, especially in my team, we do so many refinements, which is, you know, going through an idea that's come from product or even an idea that's come from the engineers and just discussing it as a team and as a group and fleshing it out. And then even once we've built it, we also all try the product and test it out. And I think that adds to the effectiveness of a team um, with different disciplines in it. Can I quick ask a quick question? Um, I guess from from my experience, I've always been relatively keen to know this from an engineering perspective. What, what do you guys see as the most important thing from a 
a product manager or from a designer. So like, what, what do you want from the guys that you work with? Because I, um, you know, it's, I've got product roots from w- w- way back in the day. Um, but it is interesting to get sort of an engineer's perspective on actually, you know, I like to receive my designs like this. They need to be annotated like that. Or I like my specificity. Hmm. Like the worst thing that can, the worst thing that you can get as an engineer is like some beautiful Figma design and you pointed a number on the screen. You're like, cool. Where does that number come from? And they're just like, uh, don't know, didn't think of that. Like, it's really, it's like, as an engineer, you're like, cool, what happens if I push that button? Like, cause you, you think about every single little thing, like where, like, is this number an API that we call from some other place? Is it an internal API? Is it something that we can calculate at the front end? Is it something that's calculated at the back end? What does this button do? What happens if I hit the back button at this point? What happens if I click the save button? Like, the, like. I mean, I see this over and over again, and luckily I, I work with some amazing people, so we don't have this problem a lot, but um, more specificity is always good, right? Like really think through how things are going to be built. And that helps, you know, as a, as a product designer, that helps you think um, in a technical way, you know, like com- computers aren't magic. They're, they're really actually quite stupid. Um, they, they can't do anything automatically. You have to do everything by hand or do you have to do everything by code? So um, that, that'd be my tip for product designers is just try to like, you know, think about exactly how everything that you can see is going to work. Uh, Amber, from your perspective? Yeah, I think detail is important. Um, if I get a spec or a design, I'd like to know what what needs to happen, what is, what is expected. Like often user stories or test cases are really helpful. Um, when, we create, um, when we create our backlog, we create tickets with, you know, acceptance criteria and then test cases. And that's really helpful. So I can help design and help put forward ideas, or we can all do that for the solution. And then also make sure that we've created something that fits the criteria. Yeah, Amber and Simon described it beautifully. One small thing I would like to add is that it's not only the project managers work or the designers, but the whole team's work. So if my project manager forgets something, I should feel obligated to to ask for extra clarification and information. So in the end, we build something as a team, not individually. It's a good shout. Um, We're going to move on to the next session, which is um, generally around, I guess, advice for senior managers. Ballpark question, again, I'll open this up for the field. Uh, Nick, Nick, you might want to take this one. But if you could tell one thing to the C-suite, uh, and general decision makers in larger corporates, uh, what would that be about engineering? Like how to embrace it? Would it be, um, you know, how to work with us better? Would it be, you know, these are the things that really, you know, piss us off. Therefore, this is what you need to change. Like in in your mind, like, I guess, you know, bridging that gap of communication that we've talked about a little bit today, it's getting better. But, you know, what what's one of the things, what's the piece of advice that you would you, you would give or that you do give to to Banks legacy organizations. Again with the one liner. Um goodness, what yeah. <laughs> I could write a whole book on, on everything I want to sort of communicate. Interestingly, it takes me back to the, the previous point actually. I suppose one of the, the big things, maybe it's because it's top of mind, is that how you design your organization and, and where you sit people and, and what engineering is, and that it's not engineering, it's actually a sort of first class part of the business it, it's, it's not a cost actually it's, it can be a competitive advantage um, and I think as I say touching on the previous point I, th- I think it's you know push push the collaboration to the left so you know you're not receiving from a designer you're working closely with and I think with regards to your yeah, offshore onshore I think that um, and this will be advice I would give the, uh, the exec by the way um, if you take a like 
any team of people, they all have, if you, if you draw lines between them as their communication, almost like nodes, like a neural net, if any of those lines are stronger, those people will tend to have a, a close relationship. So I think, you know, there's no one size fits all. And it's about being mindful about how you do that. So if you put a bunch of people in one location and another, their connecting lines will get stronger, which means these connecting lines will get weaker. And then you've got two silos. So what's been interesting about everybody being remote is it's kind of evened it up a little bit, which is good. And it's what I worry about. Like if we go back to an office and you find some people are remote and other people are in the office, you know, even before, mm. even before lockdown and COVID, actually, we were sort of working on, well, how do you, how do you even up those meetings so that you don't get like the, the classic anti-pattern of six people in a room with one person at home at the end of a very bad phone line who can hardly get a word in anyways. So I suppose going back to the original point, I suppose it's, what I want um, C-Suite to understand is is a lot of technology is not about writing code. It's about the relationships and the communication and setting the organization up in such a way that engineering is is thought about. You know, you don't have to think about it as a C-Suite. If you put it in the right place in the organization, it just gets thought about. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. Um, uh, Amber, your, your thoughts on that? Um, so just to the point about being remote and not being remote. Like I really enjoy it. And I've been on teams where some people are remote and some aren't. And I did not enjoy that. It was a real struggle. Um, but one thing I found with being remote is I'm just chatting to the people in my like team or who I need to. And sometimes I forget that I can very easily chat to somebody in the C-suite or senior management because I can just go and Slack and message them. Whereas if I was in the office, I might see them walk past and like, you know, call them up and say, can I ask you a quick question? Um, so I think, I think there's like pros and cons to the way we're set up now and going forward, we need to make sure that it's, we're, we allow people to still be remote. And I think that's a great thing to have, especially in my team. We've got people all over, but to also make sure that like the senior management and C-suite are easily accessible and you know come to mind like they need to be on top like at what's it at top of mind so that you do think you can actually go and message them and speak to them because i think having those lines of communication are important yeah and i, I guess um and simon I'll, I'll direct this one to you towards you um i suppose that We've certainly felt it across the last few years at 11FS that the role of an engineer has, has grown and the voice of an engineer, I guess, in a lot of the work that we do has grown massively, um, even from when we started to now. Um, do, do you do you expect, just given the shortage of uh, you know developers and almost a very candidate-led market that we t- spoke about before, do you see you know a lot of engineers doing what you did essentially, which is, you know, leaving their business and going to start their own, you know, own companies, own tech companies. And and if that is the case that that happens more and more, which it does, does seem like it's doing, um, what, what's your advice to them as someone who's, who's just founded your own? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't actually, I don't think you'll see a, a large increase in the number of engineers wanting to start, um, start companies. I think the market is actually probably fairly efficient for engineers. Like they can, they have so much choice, right? Um, you can go out and you can make 120000 a year writing Java code at JP Morgan, or you can go out and earn half that and, and to, you know, take a chance on starting a company. I don't, I think what holds people back from starting companies is, um, sometimes it's, it's self doubt and sometimes it's like the rational aversion to insane hard work with a low probability of success. So I, I don't actually think that we'll see a large increase in the number of people wanting to start, um, start companies on their own. 
Um, yeah, it's not the correlate. Yeah, the correlation isn't that isn't the correlation. Is basically there's another thing. Yeah, I get that. Um, uh, and I guess Nick, Nick, from from your perspective, just to just to touch on that point, um, uh, I guess from an I suppose from a variety of of work that that is being offered to engineers do you think that you know in order for let's say if you're in a legacy organization you want to build up your tech team how can you build how can you keep your engineers i guess interested in what they're doing by giving them a you know sort of a the right variety of work to keep them interested if you like i for instance if i was a product manager you know every sort of three four years you know if they're working on a feature or a product or whatever it might be or every two years or whatever it might you know you might want to switch them up to focus on something else learn a new skill learn a new industry whatever it might be and and what's the reciprocal I guess process for uh, for an engineer again an, an interesting one and a challenge I think it's it's exposing them to a range of problems I think ultimately engineers like solving problems I think if you're if you like in a large like in a bank or something like that particularly where you don't have a customer or your customer is internal often and i've seen this in the past and i don't know i can't even remember what i've been guilty of it myself but you'll you'll do something in the code and you'll make it interesting for yourself or you'll pick a framework or i've seen people do this pick a framework or a new tool that they just want to learn for something to do almost you know with no real focus on like yeah it, it'll work it, it's kind of the right thing but actually it's not the the best tool for the job, but actually it's the tool that suits the developer. And that's in a big organization, I think. So I think you can, if you're not careful, you can see that. I think in a small organization, by being, again, yeah, all, all roads lead to get the engineers closer to the customer, closer to the problem you're trying to solve. And this is, you know, I mean, yeah, we talk about agile, but it's those, it's the weekly iterations, it's the, it's the feedback. I mean, it's the, the damn pink thing about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. You know, in a big organization, often you don't know what the purpose is. You're mastering something, and that's what the code thing is. You're learning the code. Great, you can take that elsewhere. But I think to keep people interested, you need to keep, yeah, rotate them where you can, but just keep exposing them to the problems because. And a business, the problems will always change in a, in a fast-moving company. So mm. you always have fresh stuff to, 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 to sort of challenge That's you. so true. Like the key to succeeding in a, in a startup, a really early-stage startup, is to give everybody a CEO mindset. Like just make sure everybody fully understands like, and would make the same decisions that the CEO makes. Um, but the difference is that they're, you know, working in code. But they could, like a, a really good startup engineer solves problems. Sometimes that involves writing code. But most of the time it involves, you know, understanding something or understanding that, you know, something is not going to work because it requires a habit change or it's unlikely to succeed because of, you know, external pressures that have nothing to do with code, right? Mm. Um, Yeah, totally agree. If you can solve a problem without writing writing code, do that. That's the best solution is to not write code. (laughs) Because if you write code, you've got to maintain (laughs) the code. You've got to release the code. You've got to do all those things. So, yes, don't write code. It's my advice. Nice. Um, and what a what a wonderful way to end the show. <laughs> no, th- th- thanks so much. That was great. Uh, and that does wrap up today's discussion. Uh, thanks so much um, to all of you for joining me. Um, we're just going to go around uh, and just ask you guys, what's the best way of contacting you? Um, so, Chris, we'll start with you. Uh, what's your what, what's your mode of what's your mode of contact? My yeah. Um, the main way for for one to find me is uh, via Twitter which is at Chris underscore Margonis. Yeah, and I'm pretty active there, so... Come and check it out. <laughs> cool. Uh, Amber, how about yourself? Um, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn and then Curve um, on our homepage. And we've actually just started a new engineering blog called Compiled, so take a look at that. Nice, nice. Uh, Simon, yourself? Uh, we're at fronted.rent if you want to check out Fronted, and uh, I'm Simon VC on Twitter. 
Cool. And uh, Nick? Yeah, nick.funnel at lmfs.com, obviously. And uh, yeah, you probably best find me on LinkedIn. But yeah, I'd be really interested in people's thoughts. Cool. Uh, and you can uh, contact me at AdamD8 on Twitter or LinkedIn or obviously at 11fs.com. Um, thanks so much for listening. Uh, if you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. Uh, it helps to make the show better uh, and it helps for others to find the show. Uh, as always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just uh, search for 11fs or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Uh, thanks very much for this week uh, and goodbye.